uh, welcome. We're in a brand new series. We just started last week, Character Under Fire, Life Lessons from the Book of Daniel. If you have your outline, pull that out. And uh, as you're pulling that out, let me show you kind of a a funny that happened this last Sunday. Um, One of our college students came down afterwards and said, you ran out of outlines at the 1115 service, so I took notes on my coffee cup. I think it's pretty creative. Good for them, right? So if we don't have outlines, and maybe if you have like someone's bare neck or maybe a bald head in front of you, you could do it on there as well if you like. Um, Otherwise, otherwise, take out your bulletin. That's a bad joke to start this off, wasn't it? (laughs) Take out your bulletins. Have those in front of you. We're in a series, Character Under Fire. And if you have your Bibles, open up to Daniel chapter 2. And as you get that prepared, uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been in an auto accident? Show, show of hands, in an auto accident. Okay. How, how many of you, let me ask it the other way. How many have not been in an auto accident? Okay. So, some of you, okay. Uh, how many of you were driving in the auto accident when it happened? How many of you were at fault when it happened? Okay, leave those hands up. Folks, these are the ones to stay away from when you're driving away from First Baptist this afternoon. Yeah, all right. I was first. I was first in an accident when I was 17. And I was driving. I was at fault. Um, uh, We were uh, traveling up to go skiing um, up in the Sierra Nevadas. And uh, we had two cars kind of in our caravan traveling up. I was the first one. And I went around a hairpin turn and um, hit some black ice. And the car spun a 180 crashed into the snowbank on the other side of the road, uh, and we were facing exactly the opposite way. Um, And, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where I just completely felt out of control when you can't steer, your, your uh, car has no traction, uh, your tires have no traction. Uh, fortunately, no one was coming the other way. We crashed into a snowbank. We actually thought nothing was wrong because it didn't scratch the car, it just hit the snowbank. But what happened was, you know those poles that are sticking out of the ground that the snow is in? It went over the top of one of those and it bent it and there was little spikes on that. And as the car slid over the top of it and bent it, it punctured the gas tank. Uh, and so gas was leaking out. We got out. We pushed the car away. We thought we were all right, but then we smelled gas. We looked at it all. It's like, oh, my goodness. Yep, we've got to take care of this. It was the day. I still remember telling my parents, your boy grew up into a man because um, I had to kind of handle all of that and getting it towed and taken to the auto shop and getting it repaired uh, and all that that entailed. But, again, I, I remember the feeling of that, uh, the scariest part being out of control. In fact, to this day, I really don't enjoy driving in snow or in cold weather. Uh, because you can never see where that black ice is coming. And I have sensors on our car that if we hit some black ice, it'll actually start to beep. And, and there's not much I can do, though, at that time, other than know that I'm out of control, which I could have told the car that anyway um, as I'm skidding along the road. Um, but, but, you know, that, that feeling is kind of scary. And, and that can happen in our cars, but it gets even worse, and it's even more scary when it happens in our lives. And some of you may be here today, You say, yep, you know what? There's situations in my life where I totally feel out of control. Maybe it's something with your finances. Maybe it's something at your work. Maybe it's with your boss. You feel like he's not listening to you much or he kind of redirects you in different directions. Maybe it's something with your children. 
Maybe it's a situation with your grandchildren that, you know, you're removed from the kids and the grandkids. And so what can you do anyway? That's, that, that's hard to face. Maybe it's something with a roommate that you have. Maybe you're younger and it's something with your parents that you feel out of control in that type of a situation. Perhaps you've been there or perhaps you are there right now. You feel you're out of control. Well, in Daniel chapter 2, we come across a character in here who is very much out of control and does not like it one bit. In fact, his name is King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the leader of the superpower of Babylon. And when the leader of the superpower does not feel like they're in control, it kind of whittles down to everyone in the kingdom. And everyone kind of feels on edge. But Daniel, in the midst of this, begins to display supernatural character. And it's character that we have said that is refined under fire. As we started this uh, series last week, we've said these are great life lessons from the book of Daniel. When Daniel gets pitted against his superpower on on his whims and his his obnoxious kind of uh, authority uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar kind of wields, here's something that King Nebuchadnezzar comes to understand. And it's the first fill-in on your outline. It's this. There will always be things I cannot control. There will always be things that you cannot control. And when you are used to being in power... That does not feel very good, does it? When you are used to being in control, it's kind of unsettling. Here's what takes place. Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, and he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know, what does it mean? Now, to kind of fill in a little bit of gaps here from the thousands of years we're removed from this story, back in this day, people believed that if you had a dream, it was the gods speaking to you. And so, you know, we might have dreams today. We might just think, well, okay, that was something I was thinking about or something I'm a little anxious about or just we could have even random dreams that we don't think a whole lot about. Back in this time, people believed that if there was a dream that you had, it was the, God, the gods, little g gods, who were speaking to you about some sort of situation in your life. And so... King Nebuchadnezzar says, well, let's find out what this is about because I can't explain it. So he calls the astrologers and and, and he calls the enchanters, he calls the sorcerers, and the astrologers and all step forward and they say, great, we'll take a stab at it. Go ahead. Tell us what your dream is and then we will interpret it for you. But the king says, no. In fact, in verse 5, he says, I don't just want to know what the dream is. You can just kind of say anything about that. I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret what it means. Brilliant move by the king, right? Because he could have just said a dream. They could just be making up answers and things like that. But he says, no, if you truly are going to know what it means, you're also going to know what the dream was. So you tell me what it was and then tell me what it means. And oh, by the way, if you can't do that, I will cut you up into little pieces. And every house that you live in with your family, the houses will be strewn into rubble. 
Now, if you can tell me, then I'll reward you. But if not, you're dead men. Now, just in case you don't get the kind of the authority that King Nebuchadnezzar has here, let, let me go into a little bit more detail because King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most ruthless rulers that we know in history. In fact, I think he made uh, Hitler and Saddam Hussein and other rulers like that look like 60s peace children, all right? That, that, that's what kind of ruler we're talking about here. In fact, here's an engraving on a coin that was discovered from this time. Uh, you can see kind of even the, the helmet that he might have worn, uh, braids of his hair, maybe it was because uh, he was such a battle-tested uh, um, uh, ruler. Um, when he was still the prince, not even the king, but when he was still the prince, um, his father was the king of Babylon, he personally led armies that defeated the Egyptians as well as the Syrians as well as the Phoenicians. He, he, he defeated all of them. Three major victories over three major enemies. And then he turns his attention to the Medes up in this area, and he approaches them and he said, you know, you can succumb to my power as well uh, through might, or if you just give me the king's daughter's hand in marriage, then we'll let you live. And they basically say, where is she registered at? We'll go that path. When's the wedding? And so they kind of meld in with them. Um, Nebuchadnezzar joins back to Babylon. He becomes the king after his father passes it down to him. Um, And he does such things as build these hanging gardens um, that we've discovered um, and have been talked about of being one of the eight wonders of the world, um, of the ancient world. Um, He builds these spectacular uh, buildings such as this. This was actually restored during Saddam Hussein's time. Um, You can go over there today to Iraq and see this kind of a tower. Um, uh, Saddam, uh, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, for the first time, built canals. Uh, he built a port into the Persian Gulf. He built a bypass underneath where per- uh, pedestrians could go underneath a river. That was the first that had ever been built like that. In fact, on a bridge, he paved it because his chariot would go over it, and so he was able to pave it. That was something like uh, asphalt. I mean, this guy was ahead of his time. I mean, we don't even have some asphalt in South Stockton where we need asphalt, right? And, and yet he, thousands of years ago, was ahead of his time in doing all these types of things. A brilliant, brilliant leader, but a vicious leader. And that's what the astrologers, astrologers, the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers were all up against. And so in verse 7, it says, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. As the astrologers and, and the enchanters, magicians step forward, they say, okay, tell us your dream then we'll interpret it. I mean, give us a chance here. But the king says, no, you're just stalling time. In fact, you're wasting my time. And he begins to tell them in verse 9, they says, I want you to tell me not only interpretation, I want you to tell me the dream as well. So the wise men kind of huddle up and they said, you know, this king is insane. What do we do? Do we tell him? I'm not telling him. You tell him. No, I'm not telling him. You tell him. Finally, one of them steps up. And in verse 10, they say this. They say, there is not a man on earth who can do what you ask, king. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What the king asked is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. 
and they do not live against men. And as you can imagine, King Nebuchadnezzar is not pleased at all with them stepping up and saying this to them. And so he orders executions of all the wise men across the kingdom, which is where we come across Daniel. Because Daniel and his three friends that we talked about last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are all rulers. They're wise men across the land. They're ordered to be killed as well. And in verse 13, it says this. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death as well. Not a good day. The king is not having a good day. And everyone else is feeling it as well. Which, by the way, you know, when you don't sleep very well, that kind of affects you, doesn't it? How, how many of you get a little cranky when you don't sleep? Right? How, how many of your children get a little cranky when you don't sleep? How many of you are sitting next to someone who gets cranky when they don't sleep? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's like that old, you know, joke of, uh, do you wake up grumpy? No, I let him sleep kind of thing. Right? Um, yeah. It, when you don't get sleep... It's not a lot of fun. And the king is doing this. The king is not going through a great time. And so he begins to do cutoffs. Not not, not just cutbacks. He does cutoffs. He's cutting off heads. He's cutting off limbs. He's cutting off hands. He's cutting off feet. And he's going to do this to these sorcerers if they cannot tell him what's going on. And so Daniel steps up. And you can see how he responds. He responds totally different when things are out of control. Because this is what he knows. You can get this on the second point. There will always be things I can control. Whereas in the first point was there will always be things you can't control. King Nebuchadnezzar learned that. He saw that. Things weren't going too well for him. Daniel says, you know what, though? There will always be things I can control. There will always be things I can can do. And that begins with my response. My response is always something I can control. Your response is always something you can't control. Might be things are coming your way that are out of your control, but you can always control your response. I remember when I first came on staff, our uh, church was much smaller at that time, and we were growing, and um, uh, our office staff said, well, there's an office that you can have down the hall over here in the administration building. And um, I went all the way down the hall, and I didn't know it had also been a Sunday school class for some of our older elementary kids. And uh, so I turned it into the office. The office staff said, okay, here's a desk and other things that you can put in there. Well, they didn't let the Sunday school teacher who normally teaches in there on the weekends know about that. And so when he came in, he actually did something that was not very Sunday school teacher-like. Chewed me up one side and down the other. Sunday morning, I was in there finishing up a little bit of prep. He walked in. He said, what are you doing in here? This has been my classroom. It's been my classroom for a number of years. You should not have been in here. And just was irate that I was in there and, and would be in there throughout the week. I said, well, you know, it's still set up to be a classroom. You can still use this. But they told me that I could use this area. And he just went off. And you know what I did? I just listened. 
I thought, you know, I can't control what he's saying right now. I don't know all the situation that's going on behind the scenes, but I can control how I respond to what he is saying to me right now. And so I just listened. I kept quiet. I affirmed him in some areas. I said, well, here's, you can still do this. We'll talk among staff. We'll see what we can do about making this uh, space usable for both of us. But I also realized that there were things going on in his life, and I was just kind of maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. I was the fuse that lit the dynamite going on right there. And so there's not much more I can do other than listen. In fact, I guess I was such a good listener that he actually came back the next week and gave me a little picture to hang up in my office. Uh, I think it was a peace offering to say, it's okay, we can both share this kind of territory. To be honest with you, though, I haven't always responded in that way. I think in that one I was more scared than anything, and that's why I listened. But in a lot of times, a lot of areas, how we respond can either escalate a problem or can kind of put some water on the fire. And my question to you today is this. What do you usually do when things are out of your control, when there's not a lot more you can do or a situation arises? Are you someone who kind of exasperates a problem? Or are you someone who says, okay, let me listen, let me hear this person out, and then see what we can do in the midst of this? We're in a day and an age where we like to just jump to conclusions. We're in a day and an age where we like to get excited and we overreact and it causes worse situations to happen. But again, let me reiterate, you can always control your response. And look what Daniel does. The first thing he does is in the box in your outline is I wrote down, is he's polite. So we can always take that step of just simply be polite Look what he does in verse 14 and 15. It says, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Do people say that about you in your office places? Do people say that about you in your neighborhoods? Do people say that? Does your family even say that about? You know what? He responds, she responds with wisdom and tact. Goes on to say, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And let me just say this. If Daniel could do this when someone is coming with an axe to chop off his head, respond with wisdom and tact, you don't think we can do the same when maybe someone is biting our head off? How about when someone's not trying to cut, you know, cut your limbs off, but when someone is cutting you off going out the parking lot? Do we give the one-finger salute? Or do we say, okay, that's fine. I'll go in the next two seconds. It's all right. What do we do? People know. Do people know that you're a Christian? In fact, that little fish on the side of your car doesn't go very well with that little one-finger salute that you give. All right? I hope to God you do not have a First Baptist bumper sticker on the back of your car if that's what you do. Or do you say it's okay? I'll take things at a little different pace. It's all right. See, the problem we have in 2018 is that we have this Twitter talk show type of of, uh, agenda uh, vent session that we can uh, be able to have where, you know, people on radios or talk shows or TV shows or podcasts or message boards, whenever something goes wrong, we are so quick to throw it out there. We are so quick for everybody to hear us. We're so quick to just vent and blow up and be rude about it when the truth of the matter is you don't have to be. And you can have some of your greatest witness 
to others by just being polite in a situation where you could fly off the handle and consider it a huge victory when someone looks back at you and says, wow, I'd have lost my cool at that. You didn't. Why? Oh, because I'm different. Daniel was different. Scripture says he, he, he operated, spoke with wisdom and tact. In fact, look what the Bible says. This is why we encourage you not to just read your Bible on Sunday morning, but to get it into your mind every day, even every morning to start off your day. Look what Scripture says out of Proverbs. Solomon wrote this. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know what Peter says? Peter says, if you're going to be a witness in, my, in, in this uh, community around here, then you know what? Set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer when people want to know what's going on, the reason for the hope that you have. But he says, more than anything even, but do this with, what's the next two words there? Do this with what? And respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. Even Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, says this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, you know what? Be careful here. You're going out, but I want to send you out as as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. That's what you need to do when you go out. Be wise. Yes, the times are evil, but be as innocent as doves. Have politeness be your nature. Let people see that when you feel out of control. Have people see that when others seem to be out of control. And so we see from this, yes, Daniel is polite, but let me give you a second thing that really comes from Scripture, and it says this. Don't panic. In the midst of what's taking place, don't panic. Look at verse 16. It says, at this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And so Daniel isn't rude. He's not pushing it in the face, not saying, hey, you know what, you're unruly, He doesn't panic in the midst of all this. He simply says, okay, let's see what we can do here. And then the last thing I wrote down there was, do remember to pray. Do pray. Verse 17 says, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. See, here's the point. Here, here's something you might want to scribble down in, in the margins of your outline. I didn't get this in there, but you can say this. What panicking does is confirms your hopelessness. But what praying does is confirms your hope in God. Let me say that again. I didn't come up with it, but it makes me sound real smart, okay? What, what panicking does is confirms your hopelessness. But what praying does is confirms your hope in God. It's bigger than me. Okay, I'm not in this kind of, I'm not in control here, but I know one who is. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to be in step with him. And look at how 19, verse 19 shows that. It says, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. All right, just for a second, let me kind of pull out of this story because by the end of it, we see Daniel does it right and Daniel also gets elevated with his authority. But let's put that aside for just a second. Let's talk about the situation in your life. Think about what Daniel's doing here. Daniel is a teenager. He surrenders control to God when a situation comes up where he feels out of control. King Nebuchadnezzar. 
He's a ruthless, fiery leader. When things are out of his control, he tries to grab it right back and say, I got this. Daniel, cool under fire. King Nebuchadnezzar, fiery as ever, as all can get. Let me ask you, when things take place in your life where you feel a little out of control, are you more like Daniel or are you more like King Nebuchadnezzar? What would your wife say? What would your husband say? What would your, sp- what would your best friend say? What would your children say? Don't ask my kids, all right? I hope, I hope they would say, Daniel. But there are times, I'll admit, I act like King Nebuchadnezzar. Where I don't like being out of control. I want to have it back in control and have it be in my control. But let me tell you what Daniel knew. And, and this is why Daniel could operate as Daniel did. Let me tell you why. Next point on the outline. He knew. There will always be one who is in control. That will change everything. Let me say that again. There will always be one who is in control. Because when the dream and the interpretation was revealed to Daniel, he immediately acknowledged who was in control. Look at what he says. Verse uh, 19. After it was revealed to him, Daniel praised the God of heaven and said... Praise be to the name of God forever and forever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, verse 23, O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And I am sure when it was revealed to Daniel that night, then he slept like a baby. Knowing that he was going to go before the king and knowing, king, you're not in control. Knowing, Daniel, I'm not in control, but I know who is in control. God, you are in control, and God, you revealed it to me now. And tomorrow I get to go, and I get to go talk to the king and reveal this to him. And God, you're in control even of his response. And so Daniel approaches the king, and the king asks him in verse 26, he says, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And then Daniel says in verse 27, No. He says, No wise man, enchanter, or magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that you have asked about. And you can just imagine when the king hears the first word no and says, None of these people can do that, you can imagine his nostrils began to flare. His eyes got big. I am sure he began to look down at Daniel with his big pointy finger. And Daniel just cool as a cucumber, goes on to say, They can't do that. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals uh, mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass before your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And watch what he says. Daniel steps up here and he says, okay, King Nebi, here goes. Here's what's taking place. You dreamed 
of a giant statue. And if you see the screen, you can see we kind of illustrated this just a bit. A giant statue that was glistening in the sun, awesome, tall, majestic. It had different materials that made its uh, 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 structure from top to bottom. It had a golden head. It had silver arms and chest. It had a brass belly. It had iron legs and feet of clay mixed with iron. He says, and while you were puzzling over all this, all of a sudden a little rock not cut out by human hands was thrown against this massive statue's feet and the whole statue fell over. And then this little rock began to grow. And it becomes big as the statue's feet. And it becomes big as the statue. And then it becomes as big as Babylon. Then it becomes as big as the continent. Then it becomes as big as the entire world. That was your dream, king. And then you woke up. The king says, wow. Yes, that was it. Now tell me what it means. Daniel goes on. He says, here's what the dream meant. The statue represents humanity, human authority over human kingdoms, human rule on the planet Earth. He says the head was a head of gold. King, that is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're that head. You're that head of gold. And it's kind of a divine timeline that he starts with talking about Babylon. And then he talks about, this is all in your outline. You can kind of look over that. It says the chest of silver was the meadow Persian Empire or the Persians. Then the belly of bronze, that was for Greece that followed the Persians after the Persians Empire was, was done. Then the next empire comes along, identified as the legs of iron. He says it's another uh, empire. We don't know exactly what it was, but the guess is that it was probably Rome. And then Daniel doesn't identify the last one, which is the feet of clay and iron. That was some sort of a world coalition that comes out of that fourth empire. And that is things for, we could do a whole study on all those things. We don't know about everything with that. And so for the sake of simplicity, let me just kind of zero in on what this is doing here in the Bible. What Daniel is doing by revealing this to King Nebuchadnezzar is he's saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, one human empire follows after another, but none of them will last. Know that, king. You will not always be king forever. It will not always last. And this is God's way of showing you that there are other empires that will come. Because the reason they don't last is the one that does last is that little rock that was not made out of human hands. That was done by God himself. And that little rock is the anointed one. That little rock is the Messiah. He doesn't use these words, but that's what we can glean from this. It's God's kingdom starting to grow and God's kingdom continuing to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. In fact, look at verse 44. It says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's Jesus. That's throughout all the reign of David and the lineage going through all the way to Jesus. And to this day, the kingdom of Jesus continues to flourish. It's never going to be destroyed. And when God comes back, Jesus rides in and ushers us into the new day and age, it will prove that his kingdom never ended. And it never will. It will go forever and forever and forever and forever. He says, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it, it's, uh, but it will itself endure forever and forever and forever. And so let me go a little bit bigger picture here because we can get bogged down in the weeds. Let me just ask this. What is all this doing in the Bible? 
I mean, what do we do with biblical prophecy? Do we, do we try and, you know, just like dig in there and unlock it all and kind of do some of the things like interpret Scripture and say, well, this means Jesus is coming back. You remember a man named Harold Camping tried to do that a number of years ago? Kind of made a mockery of himself and a mockery of the church in some ways, putting up billboards that there was an exact date and time. I think it was on a Saturday. Our staff, I remember, we came together and we said, okay, if he's coming back on that day, should we still plan to have church the next Sunday? I said, yeah, let's do, because... We don't believe that. He knows the date and the time. Do, do, we, do we try and dig into prophecy and say, okay, this is exactly what it says? Here would be my take on this. Look at prophecy. And we can see this in Isaiah. We can see this in Revelation. We can see the other part of Daniel. The key is to look at the future and the biblical perspective and the prophecy. Look at it big picture. Kind of like the botanist who wants to discover about the, you know, the flower, and he ends up just destroying all the petals and the pistols and the stamens and the stems, and all of a sudden it's all done. It's cut up all over his floor. No, appreciate it all together. Appreciate that flower being together and what prophecy stands for because the pattern, I think, that is set here is that, and and, and elsewhere in prophecy we see throughout Scripture, is that in the end, God wins. Let me say that again because that's really good news. In the end, God wins. Amen? That's what we understand from prophecy. That's what we understand from what's being foretold. Now, some people would love to just dive in and jump in and kind of tear some things apart. That's okay. I don't have any objections to that other than, you know, don't go against other scriptures like Harold Camping did and said that he knew the exact date and time when other scripture says you don't know the exact date and time. I prefer to say the big picture says God is going to win. God wins in all things. And, you know, some of you are like, okay, Pastor Brad, we know that. We, we understand that. Well, do you live that? Because if you did, with a situation you're going through right now, maybe you wouldn't feel as out of control as you do. And if you're honest with yourself, do you respond more like King Nebuchadnezzar or do you respond more like Daniel? Daniel understood. God wins. King Nebuchadnezzar understood. I think I'm God and I am experiencing some things that are out of control. I don't like it. Daniel comes and says, well, that's not the way my God operates. I know my God wins. Now, you might say, isn't that kind of a story throughout history? No, it's not. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you go back into history, look at Norse mythology. You know what the, you know what the people of that era began to believe about the end times? They taught, and in their stories, they taught that the gods lose, that evil wins. You look at such things as the Greeks began to explain about the future. You know what the Greeks thought? The Greeks thought that the gods give up on the humans, that the humans are just, you know, left to themselves, and so evil also takes control because evil is bad. You look at today, how many respond to end times. They believe, well, there is no God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe he's there, so I'm just kind of in charge of my own destination. But you know what the Bible says? You know what the true Judeo-Christian values teach? Is that God is in control And that God, in the end, wins. And we may go through life having swung and missed at a lot of curveballs that are thrown our way. If the analogy is made to a baseball game, you may strike out three times throughout the entire game. But when there's two outs in the bottom of the ninth and you are losing, 
you can know your God will always win. Always. And you may not see that in the way that you thought you would here on earth, but even afterwards in heaven, you will see God wins. And over time, can I just say, I've had so much more peace in my life operating with that understanding than operating with the understanding that, wait, I'm in control and I have to be in control and I have to know what's going on and I'm not sure how this story ends because I now get it more every day. God, you're in control and you win. Now, sometimes I revert back to my King Nebuchadnezzar, but boy, would I rather live in the days and the mindset of Daniel who said, we know, I know, King. You can fire off all that you want. I choose not to be under your control. I choose not to be out of control. I just want to know that my God wins. In fact, look at how God then blesses him in verse 48 and 49. It says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, placed him in charge of all of its wise men, Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal royal court. Now, Now, that came about in his lifetime, but sometimes you may not see the blessings in your lifetime. Still do what's right. Because here's the last point that's on your outline. God is always in control. When life seems out of control. God is still in control. God still knows what's going on. And that's what we need to be reminded of. That's why we encourage you to come here every Sunday. That's why we encourage you to get into God's word and read it. That's why we don't want the culture making its bigger inroads into your mind and into your heart. than we want God and his message And I pray you'll be here every week of this series. Next week, come on back. We see Daniel in the fiery first. Actually, Daniel was not in there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in there. The friends, Daniel happens to be someplace else at that time. But even the friends, they know it. They get it. They understand it. And we're going to be talking about that actually over a few different weeks. I've seen how they responded because you can control your response. When things are out of control, you can uh, control your response. And how you respond ultimately shows Do I believe God wins? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for a time that we can be reminded of your incredible victories that you have in life. Be they small, be they large. God, you're in control of them. Let us be reminded of that on a regular daily basis. And let us understand how we can live differently when we understand that. So folks, just before we uh, have our last worship song, let uh, let me ask you a question. Is there an area of your life right now where you feel a little out of control? I I think if we were all honest, we'd say, yeah. There are some areas of my life where I don't feel like I'm in control. Think of that situation right now. Have it be right before you. Have it be heavy on your mind. How do you respond to that? Does your pulse kind of quicken? Do you uh, begin to perspire a little bit thinking about it? 
Do you kind of fret walking back into that situation after you come out of a service like this? Or do you give it peace knowing that my God's got this and my God wins? You know, if you haven't come to that place yet, that's fine. We're all in journey. We're all works in progress. And so today, perhaps for some of you for the first time, with whatever that situation is, would you just pray, God, I give this to you. You are in control. God, my response follows you. Would you help me to be in control of my response? Would you help me to be God-fearing, God-loving? And would you help my life to reflect that I know you're in control and I know you win? Folks, wouldn't it be amazing if we left this building here today and lived our lives like that? Would your neighbor, would your spouse, would your family be blown away to see the peace that you have because you can just say, God, I, I know you're in control. I, there's certain things I can control. There's many I can't. God, I pray today that our lives would reflect that. God, I thank you as well that you don't just want us to have to do this on our own. That because you sent your son Jesus to come to this world and die on the cross for us, because you sent him to teach us and to love us and to show us how to do it, and because he rose from the grave and you allowed your Holy Spirit to be here for us, for those who have said yes to you, God, I thank you that the Holy Spirit lives inside. And folks, if you're here today and you have said yes to Jesus, then God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you and he is helping you take that step. He is helping you to understand and to realize he is the one who is in control. And maybe if you're honest today, you'd say, you know, I've never come to that place, Pastor Brad, of surrendering my control to Jesus. The step that that involves is simply saying, God, I open my heart to your son, Jesus. I realize he came to live on this earth to teach and to die for my sins. And today I invite him to come into my life. Today I invite him to be my Lord and Savior. Today I give total control over to him. And if today, if you can do that, then just say those words in your heart, Lord Jesus, today I choose to follow you. In fact, after the service, I'd love for you to come talk to me about that decision you just made. We would love to give you some information. We'd love to help you take your next step. Great to jump into one of the Bible studies that are starting up here to understand more about God's Word for you. That is the greatest decision you could ever, ever make. I know many of you have done that months, years, decades ago. God's Spirit is helping us in journey. God's Spirit is helping us to have victories. And I pray that you will take steps with Him every day. Salvation, one-time experience, but... Becoming more like Jesus, sanctification, that's a daily walk. Wake up tomorrow and have that same joy to say, God, you are in control. God, I know you win. God, you are the one who is in control. We bow the knee to that, Lord, today. We love you and we thank you for it's in the name of Jesus that we now pray.